Let's stand together, and we're going to get into the Word of God. How many of you are excited about getting into the letters that burn? Now, let me, let me tell you what I mean by letters that burn. Well, all the Word of God burns to me. It's not my word like a fire, says the Lord, but uh, the letters that burn, some of them burn red hot, some of them kind of like embers in a fireplace, but the ones that we're going to be looking at were written in very difficult times for the church, and um, the church is being attacked from every direction. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, intense persecution that we're going to look at in just a moment uh, was coming against them. Martyrdom was everywhere. A high price was being paid for naming the name of Christ at all. We can't imagine what they were experiencing back then. I hope we never do. I'm not going to say we never will, but it was tough. And so the apostles, moved on by the Holy Spirit, had to write some, some fiery, don't let it get to you letters. Now, we're not experiencing what they did, but I'm going to tell you, I see the persecution meter going up in America, and all kinds of things are coming against the church. And so why do we meet on Wednesday nights like this? Because we want you to be able to answer what is happening in our time with the word, not be deceived, not be led astray, not be uprooted, not live in discouragement, but that the word of God would keep you and you would be strong in the midst of the fire. So we're going to look at fiery letters tonight, letters that burn, and no better place to start than First Peter. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your blessing tonight on the word of God. We pray that you will open our understanding to your word. Lord, let it burn within us. As the disciples said on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures. And Lord, we know that when the scriptures are opened up to us, it causes an inner spiritual burning and fire that is good fire, zeal. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight, let the word light our fire, stoke the flame, and let us leave burning, Lord, with holy zeal for the things of God. In Jesus' name, can you pray with me and say, Lord, give me understanding? I receive the word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. And before you turn to somebody and say it's going to be good tonight, I want to tell you, y'all did it anyway. H hang on. Um, you didn't hear me say before you do that. That's okay. That's okay. Um, but here's the deal. I'm going to be answering some questions. If you got questions after you hear what you hear tonight, uh, I'm going to try to take a couple of questions because we're going to finish in good time. So keep that in mind. If, if I say something or you've had a question about the Bible coming in here, then don't be afraid to ask it. You're only going to be on national radio. It's no big deal, right? So turn to somebody and say, it's going to be good tonight. Amen. How many of you have been reading 1 Peter ahead of time? Going to, all right, there's one, there's two, all right? I want to encourage you, as we do these uh, series on Wednesday nights, I want to encourage you to read along or read a chapter ahead. Now, tonight I'm going to get halfway through chapter one, and um, we're, we're going to hit on some really powerful words. 
Because you know words have meaning. Amen? Words have meaning, especially Bible words. So we're going to look at um, just some power-packed words that are in the first nine verses of 1 Peter. Um, But read ahead. Next week, have read uh, chapter 1. Just go ahead and read it, 1 Peter 1. And write down whatever it says to you in the margin and kind of get ready for me to go through it. And I'm very thankful for Johnny's mom being uh, coming through the COVID thing. We have several people struggling and that are out uh, sick, and we want to keep them in our prayers, and we just believe God to see them through. And I reiterate, I will never again close. I mean, if it's just me and you and we four and no more, I'm going to be here. All right? All right, First Peter. Everybody say First Peter. Uh, now, the whole book of 1 Peter is comfort for the suffering. If you want to know what the overall major theme of 1 Peter is, it's comfort for the suffering. Peter is, is, is comforting people in the midst of red-hot persecution and a lot of issues going on. So uh, tonight, uh, first nine verses, we're going to look at your salvation. Everybody say, my salvation. Your salvation. So a little bit of background on 1 Peter. Peter wrote this uh, first letter sometime around A.D. 64 and A.D. 67. Now, you've got to keep in mind that that's just a few years before the destruction of Jerusalem, which was a major deal, major event. Uh, everything changed after that, everything. So Peter writes this just a few years before over a million Jews are slaughtered. Uh, many Christians escape. Jerusalem, before the Roman army uh, seals them in, they escaped based on the words of Jesus who said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, get out. It goes to show you when you obey Jesus, it can save your life. Amen? Amen? So they got out and they got into the mountains and sadly, they, they watched the whole city captured and over a million of their uh, blood brethren slaughtered, and everything changed. So he wrote it just before that. It was in the year A.D. 64 that a terrible fire had swept through Rome, uh, destroying totally three of the 14 districts the city was divided into. So this was a major, major fire. And Nero was responsible, but he blamed, guess who? The church. Now, that matters, because this is the backdrop of 1 Peter. He blamed the church, and he had Christians arrested, and he wrapped them in tar, pitch, combustible substance, put them on poles in his garden, and lit them on fire. This is the backdrop of 1 Peter. Nero was a liar. He was demon-possessed, no doubt about it. He then launched a terrible persecution against God's people after he blamed the church. Life became dangerous for everybody who named the name of Christ. Uh, And it was likely during that time that Peter and Paul were martyred. I want you to note that under Nero, the two greatest men on the planet were killed. Under Nero, I would not want to face God with that resume. Amen? 
Peter was hung upside down on a cross. Paul was beheaded. To my mind, Paul, I want to be careful here because they were all great men, all the apostles, but Paul, to me, was the greatest man on the planet on the time for God. And he was decapitated. Now, not surprisingly, Nero committed suicide in A.D. 68, two years before Jerusalem fell. He was only 32 years old, so he did all of this before the ripe old age of 32. Yeah. In the 14th year of his reign, he ended it. No, no wonder. How can you do those horrible, wicked things and have any inner peace? Right? One year before his suicide in A.D. 67, a war broke out between the Romans and the Jews, uh, ending in the terrible destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It was a, a, an increasingly intense battle. And finally, uh, Titus surrounded the city, starved them out, uh, finally broke down the gates, got in, burned the temple down. They slaughtered men, women, and children without conscience. And it was a horrible, horrible thing. But remember now, this was what Jesus predicted. He said, I'm telling you, not one stone is going to be left upon another of this temple. It's all going to be destroyed. And he predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in several different places. It happened just like he said. So, so Peter's first letter, get, get the picture now, is written against the backdrop of a very rapidly, radically changing world. Because when Jerusalem was destroyed, all the Mosaic system, all the Mosaic religion, they had, they had been raised in. And the temple was the center of their religious life. It was all gone. And the Jews were dispersed to the four corners of the earth, never to be regathered again until May 14, 1948. Everything changed. And Christianity, when he wrote this, was in crisis. He wrote his first epistle from Babylon. Now, he tells us that in uh, chapter 5, verse 13. And that was really a code name for Rome. So he wrote it more than likely from, from Rome. His heart was breaking for those that had been dispersed because of Nero's persecution. Because when Nero started killing people, raiding homes, slaughtering Christians, uh, they fled. It's called the dispersion. It wasn't the great diaspora that happened after the destruction of Jerusalem. But already the Jews were fleeing and the Christians were fleeing this persecution. So he hears about all these Christians that are dispersed and he writes to them. And he writes to them to comfort them. That's why I want to study 1 Peter. Because how many of you can say, I need some comfort? Comfort from God. Come on, everybody. How many of you can stand some, some godly, divine comfort? Amen? So... His heart is breaking for, for the Christians that are scattered, and so he writes to them. And, and uh, much like his master, Peter had learned to use powerful word pictures in the messages. So we're going to notice little f phrases like this, uh, as sheep going astray. That's a word picture. Everybody say, bah. And you know what the one thing about sheep is, is true, and I'm a sheep too. They're not very bright, right? So, but he calls us sheep. And what do sheep always do? Going astray. So he says, as sheep going astray, he says, as newborn babes, there's another word picture, 
or as lively stones. That's another word picture. So he learned from Jesus how to speak that way. Uh, And I want us to keep in mind when we go through this letter the personality of Peter. Peter was a larger-than-life kind of dude, right? Fisherman his whole life, salty, rough, tough, kind of gnarly. He was the last person you would pick to write 1 Peter. you got to stop and think about what God had done in his life to write these two letters that have, that have boggled great theological minds through the centuries. So God made him an intellectual, spiritual giant. But when he called him, he was just fisherman Peter. Done it his whole life. Follow me, Peter. Yeah, I'm going to make you to become. He says to you and me, follow me. I'm going to make you to become. Become what? What you would never have been without me. I'm going to make you to become. So keep in mind the personality of Peter. And then the preeminence of Christ. Uh, Jesus naturally is the preeminent figure in his letters because Jesus was everything to Simon Peter. And nobody had been with him, very few, like Simon Peter had. He lived with him, walked with him, talked with him. Uh, Jesus had even shared his own home. And and, uh, he had healed his mother-in-law. Amen. So finally, you've got to keep in mind the persecution of Nero, as I've already said. So personality of Peter, the preeminence of Christ, persecution of Nero... This diabolically evil man haunts this first letter. All right, he's there. You can read in between the lines. When Peter talks about the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, he's thinking of Nero being used by Satan as Satan's roaring lion. Nero was bad news baby. Right? So here we go to verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now remember, we're going to be looking at words. Words matter. The word apostle means sent one. It's that simple. Everybody say sent one. You mean it doesn't mean anything more mystique or mystical than that? No, it means one that is sent. Now in New Testament times, the apostles were members of a unique and exclusive order of men. Okay? They had known Jesus during his earthly ministry. They had been eyewitnesses of his resurrection. There were 12 of them, although the courtesy title of apostle is extended in the New Testament to one or two others like Paul. Paul was not of the original group. His ordination was bestowed directly on him by the ascended Lord. And uh, he was the exception, not the rule. But let me tell you something. People go around these days saying, I'm an apostle. Well, okay, what are you telling me? Let me tell you what I think. Uh, I don't think there's any more capital A apostles. Capital A. There can't be. Because the original word apostle referred to those that personally knew him, personally followed him, personally witnessed his resurrection, were personally there. Several of them wrote the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, dear church, there's no more of those capital A apostles. 
I'm sorry if that offends you. Well, I know somebody that says they're an apostle. Well, great, they're a sent one. I'm a sent one. I've been sent here. If he hadn't sent me, I wouldn't be looking at you right now. But am I a capital A apostle? No way. No way. I, I, you can be a, a little A apostle, but that just means you've been sent. These people go around, they love the title. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, I'm all of them wrapped up in one. I am God's gift to mankind. No, let me tell you something. Just call me pastor. I don't, I don't want to be called anything else. If you want to call me Jeff, that's okay too, although I, pastor's good. But apostle, no. I've built three churches. That doesn't make me a capital A apostle. You know why? I wasn't there to see him in person. I didn't write part of the New Testament. I didn't personally witness his resurrection. These people that want these self-important titles always look at them askance. Y'all are being very quiet. Better watch out. I'm just throwing that out free. You can chew the meat and spit out the bones. All right. Of the original 12, without Paul, Peter was the obvious leader. Uh, in in uh, every description of the apostles, he comes first. The apostles were the custodians of the gospel and the teachings of Christ as delivered by the Holy Spirit. They were the custodians. They gave us the foundation of the church. So when somebody says, I'm an apostle, and I'm going to lay the foundation of the church, I want to say, wait a minute, the foundation of the church was laid 20 centuries ago. The house is already built. You don't tear down the house and relay a foundation. We've already got it. In Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, the foundation is there. And it cannot be changed. That's right. They performed great miracles, and they wielded enormous power and prestige in the early church community. That's the original capital A apostles. Now, Peter's first letter, target audience, is the second half of verse 1, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Dispersion means the scattered. Have you noticed how COVID scattered us? There were, there were certain people staring at me every week before COVID, and now they're not staring at me anymore after COVID. There was a scattering. And if you're still sitting at home, you need to get out of home and get back in church. That's free. Now, the various provinces that he names, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, so on, they are provinces of Asia Minor. We tend to associate these regions with Paul's ministry. And Peter must have gotten wind that they were also experiencing fallout from the terrible persecution of Nero, and they had been scattered, uprooted, um, lost everything near and dear and familiar. That's the ones he's writing to. Have you felt that way lately? Listen to verse 2. Now here comes some big million-dollar theological words. Elect. Everybody say elect. According to the, here's the second one, foreknowledge. Say foreknowledge. Let's try together. Elect foreknowledge. Those are million-dollar theological words, and I'm going to explain them. The foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what elect means. We who believe 
were elected by God according to his foreknowledge. But stop now. Follow me. Track with me. I'm not saying some are called to salvation, the elect, and others to damnation, the non-elect. Now, for those of you that lean towards Calvinism, I'm very sorry. I'm going to poke a needle in your balloon. Because when he says elect and foreknowledge, he's not saying by using the word elect that God picked you to be saved for whatever reason. But he did not pick somebody else. So you're going to be saved no matter what, and the person he didn't elect is going to be lost no matter what. No. Whosoever will, let him call upon the name of the Lord. It is not God's will that any should perish, but all. Everybody say all should come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, so he's, th that verse or that word is not saying there's no choice because there is a choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose, right? Now, through God's omniscience, here's what it means. He knew you would come to him. He knew. God's never surprised. He never turns to Jesus and says, can you believe they came? <laughs> Who would have ever thunk it, Jesus? Come on. No, he never sits in heaven and says, I can't believe it. God never says, well, I'll be. No. Let me tell you, you go out, you go out and you say, last night I found the Lord. No, you didn't. Last night the Lord found you. He convicted you and drew you. But you did make a choice. Now, here's, here's what elect means. Here's a door right here. Here's a great big stately door. I, as I approach it, it says, whosoever will, let him come. I hear the gospel. I say, well, I'm a whosoever, so I'm going to go through the door. And I open it, and I go through, and I close it. And I notice it says something on the other side. I knew you were coming all the time. I knew you were coming. I knew you were going to come. So therefore, I elected that when you come to my son, I'm going to bless you with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. I'm going to give you eternal life. Amen? So it's not this irresistible salvation or irresistible lostness. In other words, I have no choice in the matter, but no, when you choose, it just never shocks God. There may be people in your life that are shocked to this day that you got saved, but not God. So he planned ahead of time for you to enjoy the benefits of salvation and ultimately eternal life, that you would be sanctified by the Spirit and saved by the blood. Can we thank God for our salvation right now? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If I didn't believe that every person can be saved, I don't know that I could get up here another Sunday and preach. No, i got to know. When they hear that gospel and the Holy Spirit touches them and they feel conviction that anybody can be saved, He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that word begotten is loaded, it's pregnant with meaning, okay? It means new birth, born again. He has begotten you. You, you have literally been in the spirit conceived by God. You're born again. That threw Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel, when Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, I'm telling you that you're going to have to be born again. He said, how can I be born again? Crawling to my mother's womb again? Or what are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus said, you've got to be born of the water and of the spirit. You've got to be born twice. First time you're born, the water breaks in the mother and the baby is born. Born of water, then you've got to be born of the spirit second time. Get saved again. That are born again uh, and come to Christ and experience that new nature. If any man be in Christ, any woman be in Christ, they are a brand new creation of God. Okay? So we're born again to a living hope, begotten unto a living hope. Now when you study the epistles of Paul, John, and Peter, you'll find they all had a favorite word. They really do. They, have, they all have a favorite they use more than any other. Let me tell you what they were. Paul's favorite word, what do you think it was? Faith. Everybody say faith. By grace you are saved through, and that knowledge of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. Now that was Paul's favorite word. You'll see him say it over and over again. He's huge on faith. We're saved by faith, not by works. That was his mantra. John's favorite word, what do you think it is? My little children love one another. John loved love. And you can't read first or second or third John without coming across it over and over again. Peter's favorite word was hope. And interestingly, in the Bible, faith, hope, and love are the most popular trilogy of words. Faith, hope, and love. So through Paul, you're going to hear about faith. Through John, you're going to hear about love. Through Peter, you're going to hear about living hope. Peter calls our hope living. Hope always has the future in mind. Hope, when you've got hope, you have a confident expectation that something good is coming towards you in the future. You don't wake up and dread the future. You wake up and you're excited about the future. What is God going to do next? What door is he going to open? Uh, what is the Holy Spirit going to show me next time? Uh, you know, you're excited when you wake up. You've got a reason to live. That's why hope is the oxygen of the soul. You can't live without hope. I can't live without hope. Oh, I can, my heart can beat, but I will die on the inside as a human being without hope. Got to breathe it spiritually. The believer's great hope, ultimately, is this. Triumphant rapture to glory. The rapture is coming. The rapture of the church is coming. Jesus is coming again. Are, do you hope for that? Do you hope for that? You know, there are churches in America and around the world that if you went in there and you preached on the second coming of Christ, they would give you the boot and tell you, we don't go there anymore. We don't believe that anymore. We just want to do good things for people. And they take away... The great hope. Our great hope is that a trumpet's going to blow. And the dead in Christ will rise first. 
And those of us that are still walking around shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Amen. Amen. And, and that, that kind of living hope, that's, what, that's why Peter is talking about it. He said, look, you've got a living hope, so let that hope carry you through this troubled world, uh, this, the, this world of trial, this world where there are Neros. Let your hope carry you above it. Let your hope transcend the problems around you. Let your hope, keep your eyes peeled on that certain hope that he's coming, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and always lives to make intercession for you and me. How did Jesus endure the cross? The hope set before him. Do you catch that, church? Ooh, I could preach that. If this was Sunday morning, I would take off on that and I wouldn't touch another thing tonight. Because it says, he endured the cross for the hope set before him. For the hope. What was his hope? I'm coming back from the dead. And I'm going to be king of kings and lord of lords. And I'm going to bring in a whole new world. I'm going to destroy Satan. I'm going to take from his gnarly hands the keys to death, hell, and the grave. I'm going to deliver mankind, everybody who calls upon my name. I'm going to be the redeemer, the savior. All these things are going to happen for me on the other side of the cross. So for the joy set before him, the hope set before him, he endured the cross. Despising the shame. He describes our future inheritance. Here come some wonderful words. Verse 4. To an inheritance, everybody say with me, incorruptible, undefiled. It doesn't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for me. Let me just break these apart real quick. The word inheritance comes from the Greek word for inherited property. Inherited property. We call it glory, heaven, our future home. This glorious new world is going to be free of natural disasters and wars. Amen? See, see, I've got an inheritance. An inherit- How would you like it if tomorrow you received a, a, a certified letter from an attorney that said, well, guess what? Your distant um, relative died, and they left to you five million bucks as an inheritance. How many of you would do cartwheels, jump and shout and scream and call everybody you know? and fall on your face and thank God and wouldn't be able to sleep that night? How many of you would go bazooka over that? We ought to feel the same way about our coming inheritance. We've got an inheritance. That beautiful place called heaven that we've inherited through the blood of Christ, no more war, no more carnivorous activity. I love this. Creatures aren't going to eat each other anymore, and we're not going to be eating them. Yeah. The lion will lay down with the lamb. They'll all get together. You know, we used to say, can't we all just get along? In the millennium, we will all just get along. Right? Uh, all carnivorous activity gone. 
Deserts are going to blossom like the rose, Isaiah wrote. Crime will be no more. No more bars on windows. No more locked doors. No more need for police. I love the police. We honor the police. But they will lose their job in the millennium. The millennium will fully defund the police. It will defund every law enforcement agency on the planet. And then, here's the cool thing, all people will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So everybody say inheritance. inheritance. Now, he also says it'll be incorruptible, which means incapable of decay. Our city will have no mold in it, no rust, no wear and tear. Things won't break down, fall apart, crumble, no more decay. Because it's incorruptible. No more cities falling apart. No, no. Then he says undefiled. The very same Greek word is used to describe Jesus, our great high priest. He's undefiled. Our coming home, heaven, will be in the same way undefiled. It means free from all contamination. All contamination, physical and spiritual. There will be no more contamination, no smog. Amen. No stuff filling in the air. I remember one time flying into a certain city, and until you got way down to almost the airport, you couldn't see it. There was so much smog. Not heaven. Heaven is going to be clear as crystal. The devil attacked our Lord viciously on earth but he remained uncontaminated. Amen? He touched the leper, but it didn't contaminate him. He touched the corpse, but it didn't contaminate him. Uh, uh, and our new home is going to be free of all moral and spiritual filth. Clean, pure, pristine. That's our coming inheritance. Amen? And I like this. Peter says our home will never fade away. It won't fade away. Everything on this earth eventually fades away. You know, Cindy and I moved here about a year and a half ago. I had a house built. I was able to sell the house that I had paid off after living in it for 29 years in uh, North Fort Worth. And so we took that and came here and built a house, brand new house. But you know what? A couple of weeks ago, or really last week, we're outside and we turned on the hose. Wasn't very much water pressure. This was after the freeze. And I began to see water dripping way behind the faucet. I had to call and found out that even though I had covered that thing up with a faucet cover and rags and rubber bands and zip ties, I had protected that thing every way I could. That cold got in and broke a pipe. It'll never happen to your house in heaven. No, no broken pipes in heaven. It'll never fade. It'll never suffer wear and tear. And Peter says, reserved in heaven for you. Can, I, can you say with me, reserved in heaven for me? Are you a child of God tonight? You believe in Jesus? Can we say it again, reserved in heaven for me? Can we thank the Lord that it's reserved in heaven for me? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we've got an eternal home that is reserved in heaven for us. 
We've got a reservation. Amen. It doesn't make you feel good when you go to a hotel and there's 30 people in line, but you get to step up and say, I've got a reservation. And here is my reservation number. And that reservation gets you in. Doesn't it make you feel good? Can I tell you, you've got a reservation into heaven. A reservation. It means kept, guarded, and preserved. It literally means watched over. No one and no thing is going to steal away from you your heavenly inheritance. It's reserved and preserved, awaiting your arrival. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God. You and I are kept. How? The power of God. Through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The word kept there, another powerful word. It's a military term. It means uh, uh, that we are held fast. It's like when a prisoner is cuffed. All right? They are kept by the authority. In a good way, you and I are being kept by the power of God. Preserved. It's the word used to describe how Paul's enemy, the governor of Damascus, kept the city of Damascus under armed guard, hoping to lay hands on Paul. The power of God is keeping you and me. You know, people so often talk about, well, you know what, I'm just a little concerned because you can so easily lose your salvation. They're always talking about how people can lose it. I'd rather talk about how God can keep it, how God can keep you and God can keep me. I am being kept. Can we say together, I'm being kept by the power of God. Guess what? We, we have an invisible angelic bodyguard all around us, as well as God's Holy Spirit within us. And God has said, once you come to him, no man will pluck you out of my hands. Why? Because I'm keeping you. You are kept by the power of God. I believe that believers walking under the Lordship of Christ are invincible until their time comes. You're being kept. You're being kept. Peter knew what he ta was talking about when Herod threw him in prison. They, they were telling him, your end comes tomorrow. They're going to pull you out in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of all the people, and they're going to take your head tomorrow, Peter. But the church prayed. And what happened? An angel appeared. And what did the angel do? As soon as the angel came into the room, his chains fell off. And the prison doors swung open. And Peter stood up and walked out. And then the gates on the outer court opened as well. Can you imagine this? Peter's thinking he's in a dream. But no, it's an angel delivering him. Why? Because it wasn't his time. He was kept by the power of God. Say with me, so am I. Amen. Peter says, this great salvation in which we stand is ready to be revealed. Uh, this phrase comes from the Greek word apocalypto, which you know is uh, the word for the book of Revelation, from which we get the word apocalypse, apocalypto, apocalypse. Uh, it points to the time when Jesus is returning. Behold, he comes with clouds. Every eye will see him. And they also which pierced him. And all kindred of the earth will wail because of him. Even so, amen. 
Peter says, you're being kept until the return of Christ is revealed. You are being kept for that great day. Amen. It's all ready for you and me. God's grace is being extended to a wicked world right now, and that grace is all that holds everything back. When the last person has been saved, and did you know that in the eyes of heaven, there's going to come an hour, a moment, a second, when the last person is going to be saved, and God's going to know, that's the last one. And when that happens, he's going to say, blow the trumpet. Son, go get your bride. And up we go. Paul uses the expression the last time. He says the last time, the last time. Um, the last days. We first find the expression the last times or the last days in the book of Genesis when Jacob was dying and he's blessing his 12 sons and he prophesied. And he said, gather together that I may tell you what is going to befall you in the last days. Well, that's way back in Genesis. The same expression is found 14 times in the Old Testament, the last days. But according to the Bible, the whole Bible, the New Testament, the last times began with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews says, God, catch this now, Hebrews 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So the last days began way back in the first century when Jesus rose from the dead. The last days calendar began. Now I believe we're in the last of the last days. But the last days have been going on for 2,000 years. The age of grace. When whosoever will, let him call upon the name of the Lord, he'll be saved. The age of grace. We're in the last days, right now. Amen? And uh, I believe the last of the last days began when Israel became a nation in 1948. That set everything in motion, the last of the last days. Now, in the meantime, God's people are being kept by the power of God through faith. Are you thankful you're being kept by the power of God? In anticipation of the great unveiling of Jesus Christ to the world, Think of how our faith, as we experience it here on earth, not only carries us through, and here's Peter's message, I know you're in hard times. I know you're in fiery trials. I know you're struggling to pay the bills or against some sickness or all kinds of things have gone south on you. People have walked out on you. You have been betrayed, left to blow in the wind. You're not sure which way to turn. You don't understand what all is going on in the culture. It's confusing. You wish, you wish sometimes you had a better grip on God's presence, experienced it more. Peter's message to all of us tonight is your faith carries you as you look towards the certain coming of Christ and say to yourself, I reckon, yep, 
Paul said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. Amen. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, verse 7, though it is tested by fire, may be found in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love verse 8. We're closing with these last two verses. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you don't see him, yet believing, you rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. How do we rejoice? By believing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He says to these scattered people, here is the miraculous work of the outpouring of the Spirit of God into our hearts. Having never seen him, we's in love with him. How many of you love Jesus? Amen. Now, how, how in the world do you love somebody you've never met? You've never personally seen? How, how did it happen? That's what happens when you get saved. When the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you, your spirit man comes alive, and your spirit and his spirit become one. And the first thing that happens is, I can't explain it, but I love him. I cannot tell you in words how it happened, but I love him. I, I love him. Amen. Do I love him perfectly? No. Do I love him better than I did last year? Yes, hopefully. Am I going to love him better next year? Yes, if I continue pursuing him. Amen. Amen. Remember when the Queen of Sheba, and I'm closing with this, Queen of Sheba finally met Solomon, and she said, wow. She said, everything I heard about you, the half was never told me, because now I'm seeing you. And seeing you, I know I never had the full picture till now. You know what we're going to say to Jesus when we get to heaven? The half wasn't told me. Now I see it all. And I'm overwhelmed. Amen? Amen. How many of you re received this tonight? Can we say I'm kept by the power of God? All right, let me see if there might be a couple of questions. Are there any questions here with what we've covered? Any Bible questions at all? If so, raise your hand. Put it up. There's one. Yes. That mentions by the power of God. Something the Lord brought to me was that that's the seal of the Holy Spirit. He yeah, the seal you. of the Holy Spirit. He aids you and he keeps you. And I was reminded of the Passover in the Old Testament where the Lord told the people of God to tuck their cloaks in. In the same way that the Holy Spirit leads us not to turn to the left or the right. But they took that garment of praise in and don't look back to Egypt. And the power of God is the salvation or the wells of salvation. Amen. They're coming to me as you're preaching. And, um, a question. I know there are some backsliding Christians that just keeps coming to me. And the power of God is pursuing them. And, um, but they reject the love of God. And I know, I think I heard you preach this last year. Man will go to hell. Not because God didn't love him. He did everything in his power the cross of Jesus Christ and displayed it. He proved his love. And I think you said that man will go to hell 
because they reject the Lord. Yeah. And so what is your, tell me your question exactly. So my question would be, if they deny the power, the Lord throws them out on that day. In other words, uh, to resist the work of the Spirit. The, here we are with, there's a difference in the scriptures between backsliding and apostasy. Okay? Again, we've got, gone over this um, not very long, uh, and I really need to take a night on this because there's a lot of confusion about this. Um, backsliding, you can look at Galatians 6.1, if any man is overtaken in a fault, okay, that means if any man has tripped into sin, uh, has been overtaken by a, a sinful um, practice or trap, in his life. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted. Okay? So that's the backslider. The backslider's cooking along, doing great in God. I've seen it a thousand times as a pastor of many years. Uh, I, I know people that are backslidden right now. They're just walked away and um, they're living in sin. And uh, they once stood in the house of God and worshiped. And um, Jesus, this, that, and the other, witnessed everything that moved, but they got into some sin, and they have stumbled. Now, the call on the church is to be restorers of them, okay? And that they would come back. When you're talking about apostasy, that's what you find in Hebrews 6, where he says it's impossible to renew them to repentance, seeing they crucified themselves afresh, the Son of God, put him through an open shame. So what's the difference? Um, I seriously question whether the apostate was ever truly born again. Because Hebrews 6, Paul is talking to Jews. Hence it's called Hebrews. Right? So he's talking to Hebrews. Jews, and they are coming out of Moses, and they're beginning to look at Christianity, and they've, they've been exposed to the powers to come. They've seen miracles. They've heard testimonies. They're on the periphery, and the writer of Hebrews, who I believe was Paul, um, says to them, don't go back to Moses. Don't go back. Come on in and fully enjoy the salvation that is in Christ. And because if you don't, and you return to Moses, you're never going to come to him. You're, you're, you're lost in Moses, and, and the law can't save you. It never could, it never will. The law can't save you. So an apostate is somebody who says, I don't want anything to do with him. I don't believe in him. I renounce it. I walk away. I denounce it. I want nothing to do with Christ or Christianity at all. I don't believe it. That's apostasy. The backslider will tell you, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, I just, I'm in the flesh. I'm, I'm caught in this sin and I need help. I need prayer. Um, but the apostate, I want nothing to do with it. We've seen a few people apostatize in the last few years uh, that were high-profile professing Christians. 
and I listen to them after they first come out and say, I no longer believe. I do a little research, and I truly wonder if they climb the Christian ranks, wolves in sheep's clothing. Oh, yeah, I believe. Oh, yeah, I believe in G. Oh, yeah. But they were making money off of Christ, getting fame off of Christ. Um, they are those who I believe Jesus was talking about when he said, when I return, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not this and that and the other? Did we not cast out devils? Did we not heal the sick? And Jesus says to them, what? Depart from me. What does he say then? I never knew you. Okay? I never knew you. So we weren't ever in relationship. And yet, what are they doing? Oh, Lord, we did miracles in your name. I think a lot of people are going to be surprised when Christ returns at some people who don't go and some who do. Because there's a lot of people, in my humble opinion, I would never name a name, that are out there doing, you know, oh, I do miracles, this and that, but they're getting filthy rich off of the gospel. But their lifestyle doesn't reflect. So could it be? I don't know. I'm not God. But I know that it would terrify me to hear Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So that tells me that they were apostates. They, they, they never knew him. And that's what I think the difference is. Backsliders, they're messed up in sin. You better get it right. You better repent and come back because God's got a woodshed you don't want to visit. But apostates, oh, they use the name of Jesus. They get out there, but they never knew him. And that's the difference in my mind. Does that help? All right. Got one here. Praise God. I have an Old Testament question about Melchizedek. Uh-huh. Um, whatever happened to him, where did he come from? What people was he? Or is there a country? Melchizedek, king of Salem. And he is the one who uh, Abraham encountered when he had come back from the defeat of the kings and he had delivered uh, Lot and his family and uh, other citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah from foreign kings who had taken them captive and Abraham went out there and whooped them all with just a couple of hundred men when several armies couldn't do it in the natural. Abraham, man of faith, anyway. So, but when he's returning from that slaughter of the kings, he encounters Melchizedek, and he pays a tithe to him. The first time you see tithe in the Bible with Melchizedek. Now, Hebrews says that Melchizedek, Hebrews paints him as a mystical kind of figure because it says in Hebrews, he has no beginning, no end, no genealogy, and no end. In other words, he's untrackable. You know, the Bible's big on genealogies. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. When you're reading the Bible in a year, it's hard to wade through all that. But, but th there was no genealogical record in Melchizedek. So is Hebrews telling us that this was an eternal personality Abraham encountered? Or simply that, for whatever reason, 
We don't know what his genealogy was. So therefore, he's a type of Christ who had no beginning and has no end. Because the book of Hebrews says he's a type of Christ. I personally believe it simply means he was untrackable in that they didn't know what his genealogy was. I'll tell you why. Because it tells us flat out that he's the king of Salem. Salem was a real place. The Bible's not going to tell me in Genesis that he was the king of Salem if the dude wasn't the king of Salem. He just, because we have no record, the writer of Hebrews is comparing him to Christ. He had no beginning and he has no end because Jesus is and was and always will be God. All right, let's stand together. Good stuff. Are you glad you came to church on Wednesday night? Now, you ought to go out and tell your brethren, you ought to come Wednesday night. I'll come pick you up next week if you'll come Wednesday night. I'll take you out to Sonic afterwards and get you an ice cream cone if you'll come next Wednesday night. All right? We need to learn the Word of God. Let's thank the Lord. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your peace. Thank you that we're being kept. Can we say it together? I'm being kept by the power of God to the day of Jesus' return. Amen. God bless you.